Crocodiles. Bandits. Spectacular wildlife. Perched on the shores of East Africa overlooking the Indian Ocean, the country of Tanzania has them all. It's a melting pot of humanity where the roads less traveled are sometimes the only roads. This week, our guest takes a battered SUV to one of Tanzania's most remote border crossings, and in the process, finds himself stuck on a wild ride. Welcome back to the Get Lost Podcast. I'm the host, Joe Sills, freelance travel writer for various outlets around the globe. Today's guest is a travel and adventure author who has driven a car fueled by French fry oil around Australia. He's visited a long lost pirate graveyard in Madagascar, and he's written for the likes of Nat Geo, Afar, and Outside Magazine. Crucially, he's also the founding editor of the Life section at uprocks.com. His name is Steve Bramucci. Steve, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. I, we've been circling each other for a long time, so this feels like uh, it, it feels really good, especially after you got McConaughey on the show. I feel like you had to level up. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I got McConaughey, now I need to go to the next level. I'll get Bramucci. That was what I was thinking, actually. I knew in my mind, because we've been uh, following each other on Instagram for a year or so, and um, I knew in my mind, if I could get McConaughey, then I can get Steve. <laughs> right. That's what they say. That's the old, that's the old media saying. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, so before we get started here with today's adventure, which is going to involve armed robbery and vigilante justice and a, and a whole crazy saga that I can't wait to get into, tell us a little bit about Uproxx and what's going on there right now. Yeah, so uh, about six years ago, I was a full-time freelance travel writer. I, uh, you know, I had won a couple awards and was feeling good, and I was using this method called the Pomodoro method. I would go and like work for 27 minutes hard, and then for three minutes, you're supposed to take a break and lift weights or do push-ups or something. Okay. And in- instead, it's a focus technique. Uh huh. And instead, I was like, at all, for the three minutes, I was going to this website, Uproxx, and reading all these articles I really liked and just kind of being attracted to the vibe and the whole thing. Uh-huh. And I did that for about a year. And then at the end of the year, and this is probably literally the last job that had such a cool lucked out story in all of digital media. But at the end of the year, I, I wrote an email and said, um, hey, I go to your site every day. I think you should pay me for it. Uh, you guys could do really well with travel and food. Here's how. And they wrote back and said, OK, we, we will pay you for it. And I interviewed over the phone and and uh, got the job. And we built it from literally zero 
it, you know, it was a travel section that didn't exist and a food section that didn't exist to we did 10 million page views just last month in my section. In so, your section was 10 million my, page views? Yeah. So it's just like it, it just has become a monster and really found our lane, which is like our vibe is not. And, and there's a place for this. I actually really like it. When I when I wrote for glossy magazines, I always used to say that, like, you would write for a glossy magazine and it would be like the sun, the sand and the stars three days in southern Belize or right. something like that. Right. Everything and, is wonderful. Everything is awesome. Right, right, right. And now in this in this. But it would also be like this very quaint and delicate. And you, you assumed that people were reading you for the story. And now, like one thing that plagues the writers who write for me, I'm sure, is that, you know, it's I like. Our, our lane, our, what we have found is that people want to be helped in the process of improving their lives. Mm-hmm. So our travel recommendations are very direct and very thorough and, and they come through experts. And our drinks recommendations are very precise and, and very particular and they come through experts. And, and, you know, that's how we share information with people is try to get people, try to give people the tools to live better, you know. Yeah, exactly. When you talk about the the drink section, which sort of like merges into that, you have this thing called expression session uh, with Zach Johnston. Yes, you did it, right? Uh, I wasn't on expression session, but I had a a personalized expression session with Zach one time. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. We were in off off the books. Yeah. We were in China and had this like really, really nice, expensive bottle of of whiskey. and I, I don't even I can't even really go into the whole story of it because it's just so insane. But I could see the passion that he has for whiskey just like bleeding out from his pores. Or yes. it could have been meat sweats. I mean, one or the other. <laughs> one or the other. It was one or the other. But yeah, Zach is just such a spectacular person and has done so much in his time. So Zach is a great story about Uproxx, too. He actually was, I'm sure he'll listen to this, so it's it's worth mentioning, like he was menacing a bunch of my new travel writers right when I started the section <laughs> in the comments. He was like, he was he was being kind of pedantic with them sometimes. He was uh, calling like their ideas, you know, he was calling out their ideas for different thoughts that he disagreed with. And finally, I, I just, you know, replied to one of the comments. I was like, if you are this good... Mm-hmm. You should apply. And it took a lot of ego, like, uh, it, or, or it, it took me putting down my ego to take someone who had been, like, really kind of, like, just roasting us in the comments uh, and offer him a job. And I offered Zach a job that way, and he is the deputy editor now and does such a spectacular job and is truly one of the kindest, warmest, you know, just most talented, most nuanced people who who I know. You know, we're telling a story today uh, on your show that's full of nuance and full of awkwardness. And Zach, you know, running a travel section is full of nuance and awkwardness because yeah. there's so much nuance required to travel in 2021 and so much thought that needs to go into it. And you you have to be intellectually rigorous to understand what good travel is versus what exploitive travel is. And Zach has helped me navigate that in ways that I never could have foretold. Can you give me an example of that? Because I think you hit a really good point is good travel versus exploitive travel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of uh, there. I can give you a million examples and I'll try to pinpoint a couple really specific ones. But I think one thing that that we always think about is who is profiting? 
Mm-hmm. And who wants you there? You know, that's the very first thing, right? Right now we're in a COVID time. And I think people are thinking about travel often as, okay, I, can I go? Can I go? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but do people want you there? We just had to pull one of my entries from the Uproxx travel hot list, which is coming out and has been much delayed and uh, delayed again because of Delta. And we had to pull one of my entries because it concerned Hawaii. And the government said, you have the permission to come. We would ask that you not. Right. So if they do that. And that's a huge headline right now, too, is like, please stay away from Hawaii. Signed, Hawaiians. And I had I had had those conversations. I'm close with the uh, the Oahu tourism board and the Hawaii tourism boards, um, and I had had those conversations with some elders. I had talked to people in in the indigenous community in Hawaii who felt a lot differently about it than the tourism board did, and they said, you know, this is this is not the right time to come out here. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually think when the dust really settles that there will be a big change in tourism in, on Oahu in particular. I, I'll predict this right now on your podcast. I think that within the next five years, we will see locals days at certain beaches in Oahu where non-locals are asked not to go. And, and that makes sense to me. I'm and here I think, for that, actually. I'm, yeah, I'm very here for that. I mean, I don't believe in territorialism in the sense that we're all on stolen land. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't... I. I don't like it when some, you know, other white dude tells me to get off his surf break in California. Right. But, but when you talk about indigenous land in Hawaii and people who who need a little break from the tourism infrastructure, which has both, um, you know, made living on that island viable in the in our century, but has also had a, a deleterious effect, a negative effect at times, as we all just saw in the White Lotus, uh, this kind of colonistic vibe that, that Zach highlights for us whenever that accidentally pops into someone's story uh, or, or conversation. That, you know, I, I respect that. I respect someone saying, yeah, today is not your day to be on, you know, Waikiki Beach. Today is Waikiki Beach Locals Day. And go climb the mountain and instead or go, you know, go to the North Shore or whatever. That makes sense to me. I think that's important to highlight when you talk about non-exploitive travel, because I'm learning as just another like I'm just a white guy. Like, you know, I'm learning about my own privilege. I'm learning about the way that I travel is, is different than what a lot of people are able to do um, safety wise, sure. like things I have to talk about. But One thing I've learned just from having friends in the Native American indigenous community is their relationship with the land is entirely different than the one that you and I have. Sure. Like we see a beautiful location and a lot of times like, wow, as writers, as photographers, like we can, we feel we fully appreciate that place. But what we don't have is generations of connectivity to that specific place. Right. So if the locals in Hawaii do have that, let's give it to them. But let's also talk about the Uproxx travel hot list because it is about to drop and it is a BFD. Um, Explain to people what that hot list is and how they can check it out. Yeah, so I started the Uproxx travel hot list five years ago and um, I don't know why it was in my head. It was just always something that I had wanted to do and and someone had given me a budget and some control and it was the first thing that was on my priority list. So I did that. And then we it built and it built, and the 2020 hot list 
was huge. And I did tons of media around it, and it was beautifully designed, this incredible dynamic design. Contributors from all over the world, the most diverse uh, list of contributors in major travel publications. Just a really cool product. And I I did this whole media tour podcast and, and some TV and stuff like that. Other writers did media around it. And then the second I finished, like I took, I came up for air, I took a breath and boom, the pandemic locked down. Yeah. And it was, and everything, it was, you know, you remember, we all remember how fast those dominoes fell. And this hot list that we had been promoting for about three weeks at that time was completely irrelevant. I mean, it was, you couldn't go anywhere on exist. it, right? Yeah. You couldn't go anywhere on it. You couldn't go, I mean, you know, for months and months, you couldn't go anywhere on it. And then, of course, people forget about it. And, it, you know, the conversation shifts and moves. Um, and so to have the 2021 list coming out, and it's a little truncated, and we've had to continually weed out. I, I've probably lost four entries today. We've had to continually weed out entries to be very conservative about COVID. But it's ultimately something that allows us to share um, how we think travel can look in 2021 and, and how it can be meaningful. And one of the things that was really meaningful about this year was the experiences section. Mm. Um, the lead-off experience, every, every lead-off of each section that we have, you know, places and food and drink and experiences and hotels. And each of those lead-offs is a little longer than a hot list type blurb. It's a full essay. And lead off in the experience section is uh, is written by this woman, Nicoletta de la Brown. And she wrote an invocation to people, all of us, but in particular black women, to take time to heal themselves after everything that we have all been through this past year, but also after things that have specifically related to black women when you look at police murders and the bla- the, the traumas of of you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and what has been caused there. And so it was a it's a beautiful piece of writing. I'm incredibly proud to publish pieces like that, to publish a piece from Zach Johnston that is about the indigenous food movement and how vital it is to understanding American food. You know, Zach has been he I, I beat the drum about Zach all the time and he has still not gotten enough credit for really being like the premier voice talking about indigenous food in the United States over the past five years, 10 years, you have five, six years, I guess. So, so uh, he's just so vital in that space. And so he wrote a beautiful essay for us and then it's going to be out by the time this, this podcast airs, right? This doesn't air tomorrow. No, it doesn't air tomorrow. So it will be out. And those, those issues are so important because it's easy to forget about Everything's so critical. I mean, COVID obviously paramount to what happened in the last year, but everything else under the surface of that, that's just right here that would otherwise be the absolute number one headline thing in the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially yeah. in regards to Black Lives Matter. So, right. And so that, that was a beautiful piece of writing. I actually write about my home city of Portland. Um, which is a city that has charmed the travel writing world over and over and over for the past 20 years. And over that time, I've been a professional travel writer for 20 years, and I've never written about Portland. So and what now is it Port- like to write about your hometown? Because I don't do that a lot either with Memphis. So it, it feels special, I would guess. It, it feels special because of the nature of this pick, which is not a this is the best time ever to go visit Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. The pick is based around the idea that Portland is wrestling with some very, very big issues 
some systemic issues connected to race and diversity, some issues connected to homelessness or, or houselessness and the infrastructures around supporting the houseless community. Uh, just like really heavy stuff that the city's wrestling with. And then, of course, the stuff that draws headlines, which is protests between what is being called Antifa and the Proud Boys. Mm -hmm. And you have like you have a lot of drama there, but you also have a city that is best when it's the underdog and can truly be helped by tourism right now. So I never named Portland to the travel hot list because it's the sort of thing that travel and leisure could do. It's the sort of thing that those lists of most livable cities could do. But, <laughs> yeah. but right now, when no one wants to talk about Portland as a travel destination, that's when I'm interested in it. Yeah, that's if, what I like about Uproxx, too, is it I mean, you get all that really, really good, authentic travel information. But at the same time, it's not always rose colored glasses it is actually a real view of like hey here's some messed up stuff going on in the world but here are reasons that you should still go here right i i hope that's part of it and i think i think the other piece of it for me is like <laughs> if if i could have my career mean anything to anyone it would be that people said he really believed that travel was a tool that could help destinations heal whether it was from you know me being a writer who wrote really early about getting people into New Orleans after Katrina, or you know all, whatever the case may be, um, you know Portland after after these moments, or I've you know I've written about Kofi Fi Island in Thailand after the big quake, the Boxing Day quake. Um, that that I believe in the restorative effect of travel and the ability of travel to help destinations heal. Mm -hmm. especially when it's done in a non-exploitive way, especially when you're seeking out um, owners who are from those spaces or aren't trying to exploit or, you know, and it's capitalism. So everyone's kind of trying to exploit, but in a way, you know, if it's, if it's people who are local who are trying to raise and feed their families and you're helping people get back to those places and understand that their travel dollars can help restore communities, I think that's really important. I think it is important. Uh, so, Steve, I want to get into the meat and potatoes of today's show with you because I think it's going to be an absolutely wild ride. Um, we're going to go. Ready. Are you ready for it? I am. I And I'm going to ask you for your help because I'm here for it's it. A, it's, a, I, I, it's a story that I don't know that I know how to navigate. And I find you to be incredibly insightful. And I hope that we can navigate when I'm done telling the story. I hope we can navigate it together because I feel all sorts of confusing ways about it. Before we dive in today's adventure, I want to talk to you all about Prince. Before I was traveling the world, I was sweating it out at Kirk Prince, a custom t-shirt design studio in Memphis, Tennessee. So I speak from firsthand experience when I, when I tell you Parker Prince is giving best customer service in the t-shirt business. You'll get none of that anonymous corporate runaround with Parker Prince. When you order custom shirts from them, you're personally taken care of by their family, whether that's Sky Art Department, Kath in production, or Kathy at the, at the very top, the totem pole. You don't need to know how to design a t-shirt to work with Parker Prince. You don't even, don't even have to upload anything to a fancy website deal with forms. All you got to do is go to parkerprintsonline.com and shoot them an email or give them a phone call. They'll reach out to you. They'll learn about your event, your group, and what you need to promote your business. 
before you know it, but you'll have a brand new box of comfy, super soft, super super slash t-shirt shirts or hats. Reddish reddish shirt. When you give them a call, a call, make sure you tell them the Get Lost Lost Podcast sent you. It's Parker Print Prints Online.com. Back to the show. So today's voyage takes us to the continent of Africa, where we are going to go on a little bit of a ride with Steve to Tanzania. Steve, how did you get there? What's going on? Yeah, so in I, I always have liked to control the mode of transport for travel. I bought a camper van in Australia, and I bought a bicycle in Cambodia, and I bought a, a traditional kind of canoe called a Zampan in Vietnam and then bought the same kind of canoe in Laos 10 years later. I, I like to have some control of my means of travel. And when I was traveling through East Africa, I found that by having a car, I had just a tremendous access to the sorts of adventures that travelers weren't getting at that time, which is about 10 years ago, in East Africa very often. And what I mean by that is like, one of the greatest travel memories of my life was going to the guide canteen, guiding myself through the national parks and not eating at the fancy restaurants inside the, the Masai Mara, but going to the guide canteen instead and eating the best chapati and, and goat that I've ever had in my life. And the most fascinating thing happened. I was the only Mzungu. I was the only white person in the place. And I was clearly a traveler. I wasn't, I, I wasn't one of the local guides. I wasn't, uh, everyone else was was Maasai. They were wearing Maasai, you know, traditional, the red cloaks, the red or blue cloaks. And all of a sudden, there's a little TV in the corner, and someone pops in a video cassette. And it was the old Walt Disney documentary on animals. Really? It, it, do you remember that documentary where it was like, oh, the baboon laughing and tumbling with his little brother? Do you remember? It was like a very campy voice, but it, oh. Yes, so they, old school campy. Like, this is what you would watch. For me, it would have been like preschool during nap time. They would put that on. Yeah, and, and but also like really a beautiful testament of animals. I remember watching, looking around the room and watching the Maasai guides watch this. And it was all the animals that they interacted with all day. It was the yawning lion and it was the tumbling baboons. And, uh, and to see the love that they had for these animals was one of the, the most special travel experiences that I never would have gotten in my life, you know? And it was such a, a strangely juxtaposed moment because... This was 2007 and, and there weren't many VCRs left. And to have someone pop in a VCR tape of this thing that I had watched when I was a kid, and you know, it was just such a great moment. So having a car in East Africa really opened me up to a lot. I bought a terrible car, by the way. I don't know a lot about cars. And we I need bought, a description of this. I want like the yeah, intimate so details. I, I bought a Nissan Patrol. Can we curse on this show? Yes, for sure. Okay. Uh, I bought a Nissan Patrol and I, I bought it from a guy who my sister had lived in Uganda previously and she told me this was the guy. He's perfect. And the truth is, is like she thought he was great because he had a crush on her. But when, <laughs> when I showed up in Uganda without her, he was like, yeah, like here's how much the car is. Mm-hmm. You know, take it or leave it. And I didn't know the area. I didn't know how to really navigate buying a car I bought like a Nissan Patrol for $7,000 and 
and it had a big problem, which was it had rust in the um, like the, the inside of the tire. And so I kept popping tires. I popped 20 tires in about three months and tires were just popping left and right. First of all, you're driving through the outback because I was literally driving myself across the continent in national parks and on safari. But also like these little bits of rust were breaking off and slicing the tubes. So, I mean, times I would I would be in a national park, there would be lion prints. I remember once like I jacked the car up, I got the tire fixed, I drove 20 more feet, the other tire was down. I saw lion prints. I was scared to be out of the car. I don't think that's I, safe, I, Steve. I don't think you're supposed to be outside of the vehicle. It was not good. This was not. But but again, you don't have a guide. You know, you had I had paid to to take myself in the park, and the jack is this massive like lever jack to get these huge jeeps up, and I'm jacking it up, and I'm on unsteady ground, and my girlfriend at the time was was with me. And we're, we're a little bit panicked, and she's on top of the car, standing on top of the car as a lookout. Yeah, she's looking and, out. And uh, the jack, like, teeters and pops, oh and it releases. God. And I remember the bar of the jack came up under my chin and knocked me cold. And I remember, like, dusting myself off however many, it was probably 30 seconds or two minutes, but dusting myself off and being like, I was unconscious out of the car at a time when there was a line track very close to me. All right, this is this is living. This is full living. You were full living. You're also fully lucky that they didn't see you, or <laughs> if they did see you, they didn't care. You know, it's very true. It's very it's very true. I I was very lucky, but the trip just exposed me to so many moments of that, like that, of raw humanity by you know controlling my transport. You know, a really profound moment came when I came upon a bus that was wrecked and gave a woman a ride to her son. You know, to, to, to my eyes, uh, not knowing a lot about medicine, it looked like her son was going to die in my car and, and her bus had wrecked and he had malaria and we rushed him to the hospital. It took five hours. Um, but he ended up recovering, and she she just had an amazing way with him of calming him, and everything was fine. Wait, so you're just driving down the road, and there's a bus that's wrecked. You're like, I need to check this out, and oh, here's this guy with malaria. Well, for I mean, the 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 kid with malaria was a baby, probably nine months old. There was forty people. The bus had wrecked. It had been a crazy storm. I was all on back roads, all on corrugated back roads for three months, and it had, it, there was a crazy storm. And uh, we pull up to this bus, and the bus is in a ditch in the side of the road. You're like, okay, it's wrecked. And you say to people, it's fascinating because, you know, so much of what we take for granted in this world is infrastructure, right? You say mm-hmm. that, I was like, so when's the next bus come? And they were like, probably three days. <laughs> you like, know, you this is the bus. But yeah, like, people are going to be stranded for a while. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman who... Three uh, days. There, yeah, there was a woman whose son had malaria, and they asked me to take her and two other women to the nearest town, which was about four hours away. And I did, and, and it was, you know, those are moments of humanity that you don't get to have if you're in someone else's car, or if you have a checklist in front of you of how many birds you're supposed to see in a certain time period, or, mm-hmm. you know, what... So controlling tra- my transport mode has been really special to me, and it does, my shitty car does lead us to this story that we're at today. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's why I want to spend time uh, on the rusty wheels. And, and I mean, you're basically driving it on dirt and ruts and mud. And is there like pavement in some places, but it's 
patchy and potholes and stuff? Yeah, patchy and potholes, a lot of corrugated roads, which was the car had really bad shocks. At one point, the stabilizer bar uh, broke. And so, you know, there was that's the bar that stabilizes the left shock from the right shock. And when that was broken, then your car is operating like a whole different way. I mean, I've never seen a car bounce like this. So you, it, it was just it. The, the whole driving experience was a nightmare, and uh, I it, remember my. <laughs> yeah, I just bought a bad car. Truthfully, like, is there just, like a radio? Yeah, like a, a tape deck or anything? Yeah, I had a. I yeah, there was a tape deck and speakers, and then I had like an iPod, like a first edition iPod with a oh, you yeah. know with a little jack. So that helped. There was a good soundtrack at least. But by two tricks, I can't believe never took off. First of all, I I my my girlfriend and I at the time would sit up on top of the car because it didn't have a sunroof like the tr- traditional safari jeeps, mm-hmm. but we mounted a chair up there and we would sit up and we would do, That's great. we would do safari like from a chair. It was so cool. But the other thing that, that I've, you know, I think of myself as a creative person was I think the, the most clever idea I've ever had in my entire life is that I would, I put a huge bucket up there and put a bunch of heavy stones in it and a little washing powder. And I put my clothes in there. And I will tell you on God, on the lives of my children, <laughs> I have never, never seen clothing cleaner than all my clothes bouncing around with three rocks on the top of this car that had no stabilizer bar. And was just, <laughs> it was incredible. I mean, these crystalline white, like parched white, beautiful shirts. It was amazing. I'm going to start trying that around Memphis, man. You know our roads try aren't it. that great. So. Yeah, you got to try it. You but how did try you keep t- the bucket at, from falling over? How was it attached? It was, I had some little anchoring system. Of, well, the bucket had a lid, first of all. Okay. So it was like, there, and then I had like tied it down on both sides through the straps in the lid. And it was, it was pretty solid. So it just moved with the car and then the rocks would bounce around. It was good. It's just... Just ratchet strap a bucket to your roof if you're in need, people. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. It will shock you. I, I thought that washing machines did something special, and there is no washing machine on this earth that can do what a bucket with rocks can do and a little soap. So as you and your girlfriend at the time are, are driving this Chitty Chitty Bang Bang mobile through yeah, exactly. East Africa, where is your destination? So we didn't really have one. Um, my goal had always been to get to Mozambique. And I mean, initially, my goal had been to get to South Africa. We knew that we were meeting my sister in uh, in, in Madagascar for Christmas, mm-hmm. and there was only one. There were only a couple of airports that were flying to Madagascar at that time. None of them in Tanzania. Um, at, well, I guess so. I had to go all the way back to Kenya. I had to go all the way back to Kenya to get to to Madagascar or I had to make it down to South Africa and that was the rub and so I eventually got all the way down to southern Tanzania and then it was like okay you it's a week before Christmas two weeks before Christmas you can sprint down to Mozambique for a couple days and then sprint back up to Nairobi and then fly over to to Madagascar and so that's what I decided to do because I was never going to make it down all of Mozambique and all the way into South Africa. Right. And all this is like if you're picturing a map of Africa and, and you know where Madagascar is. So picture points on a triangle. Um, Tanzania is one point. Mozambique's the next point. Madagascar. And they make a triangle that is uh, hundreds of miles around in circumference. Yeah. I mean, thousands of miles. And the crazy thing is 
you know, for people who don't understand, the, the map of the United States, if you just take that and cut that out of construction paper, and then you cut the map of the continent of Africa out of construction paper, you would fit the United States in the continent of Africa three times. Insane. And I think people like I, I think people just don't fully fathom or realize that. So when you're when you're talking about like we were just in sub-Saharan Eastern Africa, and that was still I mean that's still like bigger than the entire U.S. Eastern Seaboard, or I guess the size of if you include Florida, which obviously you would. Um, so yeah, it's it's a massive amount of area. So anyway, so we I decided I had to go to Mozambique. And everyone was telling me that, uh, well, there's no, you're on the coast now. You're on the, the Tanzanian coast. And there's no way to get to Mozambique from, from where you are unless you go way inland. Okay. And I remember, so one thing with travel is like, I, I understand that if, if I was at the psychologist right now and I said, hey, everyone's telling me it's not going to work, that they would go... Uh, maybe you need to listen and it's not going to work. And you're going to say, no, I I can do it. Right. But to be dead honest with you, all five of the best five travel experiences of my life have come from saying, yeah, I hear everyone saying it's not going to work, but they're fucking wrong. (laughs) It's going to (laughs) work. And and if you can do that, and that's life too, by the way, if you want to know like why certain people become superstars and and get so big and, and it's because everyone says like, Hey, the music business is saturated and there's already someone who does what you do and they listen and they hear it and then they go, yeah, you're wrong. I'm going to do it. And that's the difference between someone who is a great musician and plays has a great career playing in bars in Memphis and someone who becomes Taylor Swift. Yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, I get it. Everyone's saying what they're saying. And it, then I'm just going to go do it. It's manifesting in a lot of ways. And you do get breaks sometimes. And sometimes you create um, really big hurdles by manifesting. But I think you're right. And a lot of travel writers share that. We all at yeah. some point were working normal jobs and we're like, this fucking sucks. Right, right, right. Yeah, so that's exactly it. So what had happened was there was there was only one border crossing to Mozambique that was on the maps and that people would talk to us about when we were up in, in northern Tanzania, which was way inland. Mm-hmm. And if we had to do that, then there was no way that this whole idea that I had to go to Mozambique for five days and get to see a little bit of it would have worked. And so I was like, no, that, that doesn't work. I need to go to the border and see if there's a way across this river, it's called the Rovuma River, to get into Mozambique. So I went all the way down to this town of Matwara, which is where our story takes place. And sure enough, when I get down there, they said, yeah, there actually is a border crossing. There's one guy who works at the border. Do you already have your visa for Mozambique? I was like, matter of fact, I do. That was the one smart piece of planning I did. I I do have a visa for it. This is perfect. Yeah, this is perfect. So I go to the river, and the river is a river mouth. You know, we're on the very eastern edge of Africa, and it's a river mouth, so it's tidal. And it's it's governed by the lunar tides. And during this stage that I arrived there, it was too shallow for the barge that would take cars back and forth to run. The barge was out in the middle of the river, and there was a couple people hanging out on it in hammocks, and it was stuck. It was high centered on a, on you know. It was high centered on the ground, 
So the, you have the to, river you was, have to wait until the next like lunar cycle. Yeah. So you have to wait for uh, they. They were like, you're stuck in Matuara for five days until the you know until the barge can get free because of the moon. Because of the moon. <laughs> and I was like, well, I could just kind of swim across, right? They were like, yeah, you could swim across without any any of your stuff. That this river is infested with crocodiles, but go for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so now so, you're in the Disney Peter Pan and you're Captain Hook dancing on crocodiles. Yeah, exactly. So so I decide, you know, I'm not going to give up my car yet. I, I'm going to wait and because I wanted to have a car in Mozambique. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to wait it out in Matuara. Now, an interesting piece of this story, and I, I love I, I'm so thrilled to be telling it because it's not a well-worn travel story. I've, I've maybe told it, you know, twice in the past 10 years, is that at that time, the uh, there there was a presidential election going on in Tanzania. Tanzania can grow an incredible amount of cashew nuts. Mm-hmm. It's the it is the number one exporter in the world of cashews, and not only that, but because of its climate, it can grow them on essentially vacant land, and it could grow more per acre than any other place in the world. Okay, but. The cashew nut harvest had been delayed. Cashew nuts aren't like a fruit, obviously. They don't go bad overnight. So the cashew nut harvest had been delayed for weeks at a time, and then and then it started to stretch into months because the presidential election was going on, and neither candidate wanted to set a price for the cashews because they knew that they might have to renegotiate that price after they become president, and then they would seem like a liar the second they became president. So the... the Setting the price for the cashews was frozen so that no one was buying cashews, so that there was no money in the labor force. And we saw this in a very clear way right up the road from Matuara on our way south in a little town called Lindy. We met a British group of people who ran a dive site there and a a dive research center, and they had had everything robbed. And it was a horrifying story. They had been robbed at Machete. And, you know, been blindfolded, etc. And everything had been taken from them. And as I, you know, we met these people and we talked to them. And as we talked to them and tried to console them a little bit, because uh, we came through town literally the day after they got robbed. Holy crap. They explained that the robbery was probably due to the fact that all the young men were out of work because of the, the cashew harvest being delayed. So, so because this cashew harvest isn't happening, people need sustenance and now yeah. they have to rob because they're not getting paid yeah people are in a in a dire situation people who are living i mean not check to check but literally like you know hand to mouth are in a, a really dire financial situation and here so you in, come in the chitty, here, chitty I come, here i come motoring down the road stuck in town feeling a certain way about being stuck i'm not good with like having my plans even temporarily foiled mm-hmm. and i get into town and I hear from I, I was staying at the cheapest hostel in the world, which was at a nunnery. And there's no Always. running water, and you have a little bucket uh, in your room, and you know there, there's not the toilets aren't flush toilets. And I'm staying there, and I hear about a beach, and it was a little bit like mythical and cool sounding, and it, it was kind of like the beach. You like hear about this white sand beach that's just beautiful, and all you have to do is take the ferry. And I had thought we were going out to an island, but to prepare for talking to you today, I researched it. I realized we were actually just taking a ferry out to a little spit of land um, that was fully connected to the mainland, but like it twisted in a way that the ferry turned a 10-hour trip into a 10-minute ferry ride, right? That makes sense. And this is a different ferry than the barge that ferries the boats. Right, right. This 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 is out in the ocean. Okay. 
so I go to the I I go to the ferry. My my girlfriend at the time was with me, and sure enough, in most beautiful stretch of land. It's so thin that you can actually see beaches on both sides with just a little bit of jungle in between, which is literally like my boy boyhood Swiss Family Robinson complete fantasy of like jungle beach beach, and we we um, catch some fish, and we eat the fish, like cook them on rocks, or I guess we bought fish at a market on the way over and then cooked them on rocks. And I did this little cookout. We had some cool friends with us who we thought were cool. And we had a little competition who could cook their fish best. Everyone has one whole fish to play with. And it was a really fun like afternoon. And then everyone starts to go swimming and we get back from swimming and I, I am laying down. I'm about to fall asleep and I hear this rustling behind me. Okay. And I look up, and I had left my backpack about 10 feet behind me, and there's these two teenage boys, and they're both elbows deep in my backpack. Oh, shit. And the one thing that I had was a camera that I had bought. I'm a a travel journalist. I was traveling around the world. I had a travel column with a magazine. I needed to be able to take pictures. But I, I don't have a trust fund. I was doing this on a shoestring. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I did it as cheap as I could. And I, you know, the travel, the camera, I remember, cost me $800. But it, it was, if, if it had been stolen, I couldn't replace the camera. Like, there was not going to be a second camera. There's no camera right? shop where you're at. Yeah, but it's not, just not that. It's like, I didn't have, if, if $800 at that point would have been two months, three months of less traveling, which was not a sacrifice I was going to make. So I was like, okay, like, this is it. These guys are in this bag. They're going for my livelihood. And I start yelling, hey, stop. And I run for them. Uh-huh. And Which is what you're supposed to do when you're getting robbed. Yeah. And they say, always run towards the thief. They say that. And I run towards the guy. And he has, like, he throws his own backpack, which had been down on the ground next to my backpack. Like, he was, I, you know moving stuff from one to another he throws it over his shoulder and he bolts and I have never been so fast in my life I don't know the adrenaline just hit me right I really started moving and he really started moving and what I didn't know at that time was that my yelling had alerted a few people and the people in the town started moving oh boy so this is like getting crazy and we're talking about a very small village like really really small and I didn't realize all these pieces to it okay um and we're, he and I are running, we cross the island, cross the bush, and we run down the other beach, which like, in retrospect, like thinking of it, had I slowed down at any point, like one of the nicest beaches probably on the planet Earth, completely abandoned. And we're sprinting down at like maniacs, and he's got his satchel on, and I'm gone. Uh, you know, I'm just like running as fast as I can. And eventually like, I, I overtake him, or I get to him. And I dive and I tackle him and I bring him down. Wow. And he says, he says, my friend has your camera. My friend has your camera. Uh Uh-huh. And then I look down the beach and about eight people are coming. And they get down to the beach and they get down to where we are. And this is where the story gets really awkward. Whose side are they on? Are they coming for you or? Right. Uh, So this is where the story gets really awkward. And, and, you know, I'm sure that uh, someone's going to tweet about it in in a certain way and I'm going to have my career ruined. But I don't know all all the answers here of, of 
how I feel about any of this, but I'll just tell you what happened and we can draw conclusions for ourselves. Everyone starts coming and the whole moment turns really dire. First of all, I'm super ramped up. I'm being super aggressive. Mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a 27-year-old fit male with a lot of testosterone firing and I'm like I'm I've got this guy. Yeah. And I'm holding him tight. And he he cannot stand up. He's so exhausted from the run that he can't stand at this point. And then the villagers get there and they're speaking in language, Kiswahili, so I can't understand. But essentially what I'm gathering is that they are so insulted that he would steal at their village because he was from the mainland and that he would come over on the ferry and steal there and make their village look bad when they relied on the small bit of tourism that they were getting from day trippers, that they were furious and I see this situation as, at this point, I've become a passive observer in my own story. But you're still holding this guy. You're full of adrenaline, I, and you've I'm, got I'm, him. At this point, I'm, I'm with, he's on the ground, like, just completely beat, mm-hmm. and not beaten, not, hasn't been physically touched, but just tired, and everyone is screaming at him, and I'm, I'm standing and starting to catch my breath and starting to recover, and I remember they were so mad and they were ramping up further and further. And one thing that I can't tell if I'm bad at or good at, maybe you're better at it than me, but is when you're in a crisis situation and your brain actually has to pivot and you say, oh, I had that wrong. I was mm-hmm. wrong about the way I had it. Oh, I get it now. I was wrong. And at, at some point, I remember my brain starts to pivot and I go like, Okay, these guys are actually being too aggressive for the scenario. Right, like you've calmed down and, a little bit. You're seeing things more clearly, and right, and and they have their reasons, obviously, you know, wanting to protect the name of their village and and their tourism. But I remember there was a big dead log, and a guy picks it up, and he swings it right at the face of this guy who had tried to steal from me, who's laying on the ground. How do you feel about and that? I mean, as the victim, quote-unquote. Right. And I see the log coming, and I, I just went pure instinct, and I stick out my foot. And it, I stick out my foot between the guy's face and the log, and the log just smashes into my ankles. So now I'm writhing in pain. And the guy says to me in English, why did you do that? I was trying to hit him. And I, I, I just can't even navigate what is going on because I'm like yeah you were trying to hit him in the face with a log you know is like so serious and and I just like to be honest for your listeners I was I was I guess 27 years old I did not have the tools to navigate this situation Mm -hmm. this was this is what we say travel teaches you stuff this is the sort of stuff travel teaches you and I was, you know, later now looking back, I'm proud of myself for that moment of compassion. My ankle hurt for at least three weeks afterwards. But, you know, I, I'm proud that that's where my instincts took me. So then what happens is the guy refuses to walk. The people want to bring him back to the village. We have to see if, where the friend is because the friend is the one he said has my camera. Right. Which is still missing, I presume. Which is, yeah. And... So and the people are still yelling at this guy and the only viable option was for me to carry him on my back because he won't walk. He or- won't walk. He's too tired to walk. At this point, he's been berated. He, he doesn't know where the day is headed. He just like 
He's he's just dead weight. And so he hops on, I, not hops on, I make it sound like it's like we're having fun. Yeah. But essentially, like, I, I, I lift him over my shoulders and carry him across my shoulders. And that was the only way. And, and as we're walking, you know, people are screaming and trying to punch and hit him. And I'm having to turn with, with this young man, you know, 18-year-old, 19-year-old young man on my back and having to turn and dodge and, and avoid getting him hit. And it becomes very surreal. And then we get back to the village. And the other guy, my, my girlfriend at the time are there, is there. The friends that we were with are there. And the other guy has been, uh, has not been caught. Made it, made it off. Got off. Okay. So he's gone. My, yeah. And my girlfriend's holding my bag. And the guy keeps saying, my friend is the one who took your camera, whatever. The girlfriend's holding the bag. And... If we look inside and they hadn't gotten the camera yet. Maybe oh they got a God. few other maybe they got a few other trinkets, they got a few other things, and they hadn't gotten the camera. And wow. so I uh, here I thought you know they were trying to steal the camera. He made no bones about that. They're trying to steal our electronics. And they I the other guy I think got a few little things, you know, but the headlamps and things like that that weren't meaningful to us. But they hadn't gotten the camera. So now I'm now I'm in this situation where now it's really awkward because this guy has paid a hell of a price for trying to steal a camera that yeah. he didn't end up getting, uh, and so now it just becomes really strange. And the village, the people in the village are angry, and people are kind of looking at me and saying, "What do you want to do?" And I'm also I've just gone on this massive sprint, and the guy is really tired, and. Uh, there was a sandwich in my backpack and he asked me in the most like delicate uh, humble way possible I, I had grabbed like the sandwich like a uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he asked me for some of it just some and, of your sandwich and I just remember thinking like oh god I, I just became the villain in this story I I am now like I am now the bad guy, um, and I I didn't realize it. And I said, "Yeah, of course, you know." And we and we step away, and we eat the sandwich together, and we have a little talk. And and it clicked into my mind the cashew harvest. And I said, "Are you out of work because of the cashew harvest?" And he immediately, "Yes, that's you know, I don't have you know, I'm out of work because of this." And the the people in the village are still trying to press this matter. Are they an angry mob still? They're not. No, every everything's kind of like calmed down now. Um, the mob the mob mentality is gone. And I the moment of me getting my ankle hit with the stick has like was kind of the peak of the mob mentality. Although I, I vividly remember it lasting down the beach and me walking down the beach trying to dodge this guy getting hit and taking some punches, you know, like in the side of my ribs or something as I try to spin away. So and he's taking punches too. because he, he was taking punches too. So it was a rough day for him, first and foremost. Um, and, and so at this point now, the people are like, look, there's no, there's no phone lines here. There's no cell phone coverage or whatever. You know, at, at that time, everyone had like that rudimentary, like Nokia kind of like burner phone type yeah. type looking thing. The snake. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But there's no there's no towers out there. You don't have any coverage out there. So they were like, what you have to do is you have to take him to the ferry 
and then um, you hand him over to the police there. Mm-hmm. And we we sent someone on the last ferry to say that you'd be coming with someone or something like that. Like my job was to like bring this guy over on the ferry and point him out to the police. Right, because all this is going down in like not the best English. Yeah, you know, me, like, trying to navigate it. Everyone's speaking Kiswahili. People argue, you know how it is when any community gets together, like, people are arguing about the best plan of action to each other. Sure. You don't, you don't quite know what's being said. You know, there's a language barrier, et cetera. And then they, but, ma- they make you judge and jury, though, essentially, because you're yeah, the one getting robbed. Well, yeah, and eventually the, the deal is, like, you go hand, hand this guy over on the ferry to, you know, the, the police. And it's exactly like a movie scene. Like, you know, you, you're on the ferry sitting next to this guy you just shared a sandwich with who tried to steal your camera, which was part of your livelihood and was very important to you and, and was spent, you know, purchased with money that you worked very hard for. And, you know, the thing I always say when I think about this story is like, it's an $800 camera. Maybe he gets $50 for it uh, in the after sale stolen stolen product market in this small city. There's just not a huge market of camera buyers in that. It was a very dusty town focused on um, auto work and auto body. Right. Make, not a lot it, of photographers just walking Yeah, around. just not like a huge photography community. Um, maybe he gets $50, but but that $50 like also represents, what, 200 meals? Like two, 200 rice bean and goat driven meals. So it's like on one hand you can say like, well, how dare you? Cause it's an $800 thing and you wouldn't get anything close to that. It's just the logic of it's terrible. And you're like, actually, no, I, I was wrong. The logic of it's perfect. It's $50 would mean a tremendous amount. It's a couple months of food. Yeah. And so then I'm just sitting on this ferry with this guy and you know, the, the British, I, I think I will give British people credit here. I think British travelers wake up to these complexities of the world a little a little sooner than American travelers, and I'm embarrassed by that. And and I remember like they just looking at them like the whole thing just felt like it had been cast such a pall on their on the day, and and they were uncomfortable by it, and it it. It all felt weird, You're right? Talking like, about the people you encountered on the way into town. The, no, the people, the British people who we had gone and, and grilled fish with. Oh, and everything. okay. So like they're the with other, you on the boat back. Yeah, the other there. young backpackers, and everyone feels kind of awkward. And it's also like here's, like there there's there are issues of race and colonialism at play. Like here's yeah. the white dude who's going to turn in the guy who tried to steal his camera but didn't steal his camera. And I remember just realizing, like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, this, uh, this guy didn't do anything wrong, ultimately. I actually respect his choice to try to steal my camera. Like, I, I understand that choice. I'm not a person on this planet who believes that, you know, first of all, that morality is cut and dry. But second of all, that, that stealing is always inherently wrong. Like, I, I actually think, especially as I retell this story now for the first time in six years, is... You know, that he had a, if you were looking at the moral imperative, who had the moral imperative, I think that he was correct. He, he was, you know, I think it was kind of okay for him to try to steal that camera. Um, and so I remember just like my whole brain is like pivoting and, and reassessing and pivoting and reassessing. And we get to shore. It's only a, a seven minute, 10 minute ferry ride. And we get to shore and I was like, yeah, I can't do this. Just just go and I'm going to tell them, you know, whatever. 
and he steps out one way and I step out the other side of the ferry and they say, you know, the police are there to meet me. And they say, well, I, we heard there was a robbery. I was like, yeah, there was. And can you tell us the story? I told him a little of the story and they say, but they said that the guy was going to be on the ferry. And I was like, yeah, he, he's not. Um, and then that was it. That was, that was the end of it. And it, I felt awkward and, and I, I wanted to get out of the town cause I had a lot of stuff I was wrestling with. Right. So so it was going to take the lunar tide five days to get full enough where I could get my car across. But at three days, I went back down to the border and I, uh, I convinced the captain of the ferry to let me and some people go into the crocodile infested waters and help push the ferry across uh, off of the sandbar that it was on. And he gets it going. And he, it, it's just deep enough. He's literally like the motor is like scratching the bottom of the sand. And I run back to the, to the shore and hop in my car. And I remember he slammed into the bank and it was so clear. This is it. And I skidded onto the ferry and he swung me back to the other side and I made it to Mozambique. And, uh, that, that concludes my time in Matuara, Tanzania. What a tale. So, did you encounter any crocodiles while you were pushing the ferry off of a sandbar? I didn't, and in fact, so I spent a week in Mozambique with my girlfriend at the time, and uh, then when we got back, the tide, the lunar tide was off again. I, we had spent the exact amount of time where the lunar tide was off, and it wasn't going to work again, and I had had it, and the lunar tide was really low now this time, and... And I convinced a couple guys, I paid them the last of the currency that I had on me at the time, and we pushed the car, we floated it across the river on the way back. You floated the car, like Oregon Trail? Yeah, yeah, it was exactly Oregon Trail. It was a, the car was sealed, and I turned off the engine, and I drove into the water, and me and the guys guided the car through the water, and my girlfriend at the time, uh, you know, she steered. And you're just waiting we, and like kind of we got back to the other side. Yeah, because of the way the way water works. I guess it was buoyant enough where you could kind of push it around. Yeah, kind of guide it around and, and push it to the other side. I mean, it, it, there was just so much nuance to deal with. I mean, even as as that after the Mozambique trip, we we push the car all the way to the other side and the tide is coming up and we get somewhere and we get to the other side of the river and someone has pulled his anchor cable for his boat across the 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 beach where we're trying to run this car up and he says pay me ten dollars or you can't take your car up here my anchor cable's out and i remember like i i I didn't have any currency and now the car like the tides is rising and now the car might drift away and it's starting to take on water and i that time i did the only thing i knew which was i had a machete under the the seat of the car and I took out the machete and I was like, look, this is my livelihood. And this situation is going to go south really fast. Mm-hmm. And he pulled the, the anchor cable away. But um, but it was, you know, it was really like a, a span of time. That couple weeks in southern Tanzania was a time where I really had to confront big ideas of privilege and and, you know, who has what and what is true justice look like in ways that were really dramatic for me. I think as we try to unpack the lessons from this, the privilege part is pretty important because it seems like in the moment, even as a young kid, at least in our eyes now, um, you had the presence of mind on the ferry back to say, listen, basically no harm, no foul. 
Do you think if confronted with the same situation again, you would revert back to that? Obviously, circumstances are different. I mean, 800 bucks to a 27-year-old is a lot more money than 800 bucks to a 33 or 40-year-old, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think circumstances are different. I think that I have more compassion now. Um, I think that that I understand the world a little bit better now. You know, it was a big... It took me a, a, a while that day to recognize that you know, cause, cause there was just this like injustice to it of like, what would you have even gotten? You know, a camera mm-hmm. that, that you barely get $50 out of. I had just bought it, you know, literally right before leaving for East Africa. Um, had you not known realize, about the cashew harvest, would your opinion have been different? Maybe that's a good question. Maybe. I mean, I think that added a lot of context, um, because then there's a difference between someone who is thieving because they're out of work and someone who is thieving because they they don't want to work or they prefer thieving to work. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think all of it, like, it, it just put me up front and personal. When my, when my reel plays in front of my eyelids at, on my deathbed, putting my foot out in front of that stick is is going to play right Mm -hmm. there are things that you're proud of and i've been fortunate enough to have a couple and you know i don't want to use gendered language or or seem too callous you know i think i used to phrase it like where you prove to yourself you know you're a man but it's not that it's you know where you prove to yourself that you're an adult Mm -hmm. and i i really believe in the concept of adultism (laughs) i really believe that there are are ways that you, you could prove to yourself like look, I know how to handle myself. I know how to navigate a complicated world. And sticking my foot out and getting my ankle smashed for me was was one of those moments of coming of age and saying, like, wait a sec, like, this, the punishment no longer fits the crime. I, I, I'm going to take this, like, this physical pain because I don't know what a log is going to do to this guy's face. Uh, it wouldn't be good. Right, right. I mean, I know how it felt on my ankle. I think the, <laughs> the lesson I think is sort of where you start at the beginning, which is that the world is full of nuance and there are many shades of gray, right? So as an American traveler, I think sometimes we are slower to come around to that. Thinking about right now, I just got back from St. Lucia and as I got home, there's a story in the Daily Memphian, which is a uh, one of our two major papers in town. And it's all about a a suburban couple that was also in St. Lucia, I presume, when I was there and came down with COVID. They were unvaccinated. Uh, And basically, the story reads like uh, an indictment on a Caribbean hospital. Like, oh, our our room was crappy and the care was subpar and not what we were used to. And I think these are the kind of people that would do well to realize that it's a nuanced world and... We're very, very, very lucky to live in a country, although we don't have free health care, we have access to very good health care, you know? Yeah. Uh, if we, you know, if the cashew harvest doesn't come in in Tennessee or in California, like you and I aren't, you know, we're not clutching our pearls walking down the street. That's not happening. Right. So it's it's tricky to unpack but i think that is the lesson like you have to analyze when you're in the midst of something um one of the things my dad was really good about teaching me was when things hit the fan the first thing you need to do is calm down 
Yes. Yeah. I think that that helps. And I think I, I actually think, you know, I'll give myself credit. I, I think that so I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. I've spoken pretty openly about it. And, and one of, you know, it, it has been incredibly difficult and frustrating in my life at times. Um, and caused difficulties for me that I've had to learn how to accommodate and at times had to be medicated for. But there is one um, thing that is very special about ADHD in my life, which is that in moments of extreme crisis, I operate incredibly well because the whole world telescopes and my my normally fragmented attention is at complete 100% levels. And it's like I've taken you know, the superhero drug because the world actually slows down. I was never able to harness it in sports. I, you know, but I can harness it when I do television. You know, if I do a TV thing, I never feel truly nervous in any way. Um, And the other thing has been during moments of crisis. I've, I feel quite calm. And so I think in that moment, I was able to like assess situations pretty quickly and my brain started clicking into place and I, I lost the anger. I just remember the feeling of that anger dissipating and saying like, not only are you, you know, certainly you don't have any right to be angry left, right? Like you've lost that ages ago. You need to be careful not to be the villain here because you know, how far do you want to take this for someone who tried to steal a camera because they were hungry that they didn't ultimately get and still got pretty well roughed up for? Right. Like, His punishment was probably taking those punches on the way back or getting completely exhausted and embarrassed and run down. I mean, who? yeah, it, it just it didn't have to go any further. And and I think, you know, I, I it's a story. I, I don't know the reason I never tell it. I don't know why I felt compelled to tell it today when. I have so many well-worn travel stories that are, you know, I know can make the famous, the great Joe Sills laugh, right? I know could, I, I know could um, charm you, but this is a story that that you kind of walk away with and you go like, huh? <laughs> I can't tell if that guy's an asshole or not. And I think uh, I think that's something I'm still trying to figure out. I don't know how I even feel about how I operated in that moment. I know what happened, and I know I can report it accurately. But there's probably a better way to do things. There's probably someone who's going to tweet at me who would have been like, no, what you really should do for restorative justice is you should have done this and this and this. And and they're probably right. You know, my sister studies restorative justice, and I'm sure she would give me scenarios for what would have been better. But, you know, I, things went down how they went down, and it's, it, it's still a thing 10 years later that I'm learning from. I, I'm learning today from that story. You know, it'd be interesting to, there's probably no way to do it, but if you ever ran into that person again, it'd be interesting because hearing it here, I think about, from my point of view, you did the right thing. You did what I like to think I would have done, Um, but I also don't really trust authority or the police, so I probably just would have rather not dealt with them at all. Right. Um. But then I think about a few months ago, I was in Panama, and right before I got there, one of my friends was camping on a beach, and they got robbed at Machete. Um, I got, important to say, this wasn't an armed robbery. That guy didn't have a machete, I guess. But they were uh, robbed at Machete, and a, a lot of bad stuff happened. A lot of yeah. bad stuff. So on one hand, I think 
you did what I probably would have done, but then I think I would be facing the same question. Like, is there, is there a criminal on the beaches today because of me, or was it just a guy that was down on his luck and didn't have another option? It's hard yeah, to say. Yeah, and I, I don't think, I, yeah, I just don't think, I think the cashew harvest came in and he started, you know, he started working, delivering cashews and, and you know, picking cashews and that the whole thing, you know, it didn't, it didn't feel like there was any tremendous malice. And we had, we were also on edge because we had just this story about the people being robbed at Machete Point, which was quite a brutal story and, and had a lot of violence in it, you know, had, had made its way all up and down the coast of Tanzania at the time. And so it's like, you know, you think to yourself like, wow, this is like, I got these guys just got robbed now. Someone's trying to take my camera. This is lawless territory. Yeah, but uh, and you're already you know, amped it, up. You're like, I'm not gonna. No way. <laughs> not me. No not one's me. getting me. I'm. I'm the. You know, and that's where it gets complicated. Like, no one's getting me. I'm the uh, the superhero. I'm the Uberman. And you realize, like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> it, it's more complicated than that. And it's certainly if people are trying to feed themselves, trying to feed their families. I, I think that in a world where, you know, capitalism and greed have have caused an absolute collapse of the social structure across across the entire planet, I, I think robbery could at times be a viable option. I think there's I think there's if someone, you know, if someone found a way to steal a couple billion from Jeff Bezos and reappropriate it to the places he exploited to make a ton of money. I would not be sad. Like so office like, space. Yeah, and uh, you know, similarly, I think that if you know, if if someone really needs food and they're in a dire situation and they have to take food from a grocer or something like that, I don't, I don't think that that's a crime. I don't know. I so anyway, it's it's been a lot to navigate. I truly appreciate you helping me because I'm still thinking about it and uh, just kind of running through it. I like to be the guest therapist. It's always a fun thing to yeah. do. I think I was Mark Wood. McConaughey probably came in so cool, and he was just like, yeah, this one time I was, I was down south. I did a little river. I had a little spicy, right, a little bit of hot sauce. <laughs> and I did a little river cruise on the old Amazon. <laughs> and then he comes in, he gets to be all charming, and I'm out here, like, agonizing over my time uh, chasing someone down the beach and then getting my ankle shattered by a log. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, he turned into my therapist. That's one time that it got flipped, and I just left that interview thinking, man, that's that's really chill. By the way, uh, good time to bring it up. There is currently an Instagram contest running uh, on our page at Get Lost Podcast for an autographed copy of Green Lights from Matthew McConaughey. So if you want to enter that, uh, just go to our Instagram page and you'll see how Steve, before we let you go, you hit on something a minute ago. And I'm not even sure you meant to, to really hit on, but the ADHD thing, it, it just reminded me of the work that you do sometimes with kids and going to school and talking to, um, talking to young people about travel and why that's important. Tell us a little bit about that before you bounce out of here. Yeah, yeah, I'm thrilled to. Thank you for asking. So on that same world trip, you know, I was travel writing, but I also, um, for, for about 10 years, I would travel write and then I would go back to a school in Laguna Beach and I would tell stories, tell pirate stories from my travels. It, fictional stories that I had kind of mixed and, and remixed and rematched through my travels. 
and I would tell them at this school to kids. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I realized that I wanted to take this love of travel that I have and turn it also into, um, you know, a career in making up fictional stories. And I started to write books for kids. And my first book came out in 2017. It was called the, the Danger Gang and the Pirates of Borneo. My second novel came out in 2018. It was called The Danger Gang. It was a sequel, The Danger Gang and the Isle of Feral Beasts. Oh, man. Um, and then I write some books for Nat Geo kids, like nonfiction books for them. And then I have another book coming out that's about a boy with ADHD, about a boy who whose brain works very similar to mine. And uh, my publisher will cringe if she hears me say the title I sold it to her with because I think she wants to change it which she has every right to she bought she bought the book she's she's publishing it um, but uh, it was called the quest for the ruby backed turtle and it's about a boy in the Oregon backwoods with ADHD who tries to find a turtle that may or may not exist or have ever existed um, and that his his great grandfather once wrote about <laughs> that's the story of every explorer ever by the way yeah, we're all looking for a ruby back turtle. So. We're all looking for those things, and and you know, I think it's a really interesting era we're in because you and I grew up. You, me, Zach. You know, Zach is so funny because he is he is, and I use the word woke as a compliment. Mm-hmm. He is the we're talking about Zach Johnston, my deputy editor. He is the wokest traveler I've ever met in that he makes me interrogate things. There's a part of me that is still the dude who just says, look, I just want to party and have fun. Yeah, right. And, you know, like, for instance, modern international festival culture has been criticized tremendously. Mm-hmm. And I actually find that quite, quite a problem. I think that you have to allow new cultures and whether or not you hate the moment we're in or not, whether or not you hate the world as it is right now or not, it is a culture. We are forming our culture and our traditions and our festivals just like people were 4,000 years ago. That's true. And you have to you have to let those evolve and you have to let those happen. I don't think that it, it would have been would have served anyone to go back to the Incans and say, hey, it feels like you guys are taking some of your, your festival stuff from the Mayans, can you not do that? You know, like I think cultures have to slam together to be created. Um, well, that's, with how, that said, that's how Zach, rock and roll was created. That's how, I mean, modern society. Yeah, and there could be exploitation within it. Trust me, I, sure. I've seen it in the food world. I do believe in, in concepts like food appropriation, etc. But I think Zach, you know, Zach is, is like the most conscious. We disagree sometimes it goes that far. But he's the most conscious, most kind of uh, woke traveler I've ever met. And he, you know, he understands, I think, that thing that you and I are talking about, about like uh, when travel can can get exploitive so well. But he still has a soft spot for Indiana Jones and the and the Temple of Doom and oh, yeah. the, the Raiders of the Last Ark and it belongs in a museum. And I think to to what I was going when I brought Zach up, where I was going with that is like it, it's a really interesting era to write about adventure for children because their generation won't grow up with it belongs in a museum. Their mm-hmm. generation will grow up with it should be repatriated to the people who. Uh, who historically owned it. 
Mm-hmm. It, it should be. It should go back to the places where it came from. And I think that that will be a really interesting era in writing adventure books for kids. So I'm thrilled to do it because I think I, it'll be interesting to see the the Zach Johnstons and Joe Still, Joe Sills and and Steve Bermucci's who come out of that era because we grew up with Indiana Jones. They're going to grow up with something totally different and they're going to grow up with a different type of consciousness. I'm very excited to be part of uh, that new wave of adventures, whether it's in my work on Uproxx or in writing books for really young adventures because it's thrilling to to help shape what the next era of adventure is going to look like. I'm personally looking forward to Danger Gang and the heist at the British Museum. Yes, Yes, trust me. I'm pitching that story around hard. I'm not joking. D- Danger <laughs> Gang puts it all back. Yeah, I, that is what I believe. I, I, you heard it here first. I believe that that will be the Goonies of our era. A story, a story where kids get together and heist stuff and put it all back. Hell yeah. All right. Well, Steve, thank you so much for the story. Um, absolutely incredible tale. I can't thank you enough for sharing that with us and for coming on the show. You're the best. Thank you so much for your time and energy and thrilled to get to know you and, and be on here. And please have your listeners um, listen a lot, because if my, num- my episode does less numbers than Zach's or Matthew McConaughey's, I'm going to feel really competitive and bitter. We're going to make sure it does better. I'm <laughs> just joking. Don't worry. <laughs> We're going to make sure. Uh, so follow Uproxx Life on Instagram and Steve underscore Bermucci on Instagram if you want to connect. Please do. Uh, with yes. the brands, with the man behind the story. And we'll look forward to having you back again next season for another incredible tale. The Get Lost Podcast is brought to you by Soul Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast or listen to any episode at getlostpod.com.